Here's part four of U.S. President number two, John Adams. Cabinet. Adams appointed two U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Associate Justice during his term in office, Bushwald Washington, and nephew of American founding father and President George Washington and Alfred Moore. After the retirement of Ellsworth due to ill health in 1800, it fell to Adams to appoint the court's fourth Chief Justice. At the time, it was not yet certain whether Jefferson or Burr would win the election. Regardless, Adams believed that the choice would, should be summoned in the full vigor of middle age. Who could counter what might be a long line of successive Republican presidents? Adams chose the Secretary of State John Marshall. He, along with Stoddard, was one of Adams' few trusted cabinet members and was among the first to greet him when he arrived at the White House. Adams signed his commission on January 31st, and the Senate approved it immediately. Marshall's long tenure left a lasting influence on the court. He maintained a carefully reasoned nationalistic interpretation of the Constitution and established the judicial branch as the equal of the executive and, and legislative branches. After the Federalists lost control of both houses of Congress along with the White House in the election of 1800, the lame duck session of the 6th Congress in February 1801 approved the Judiciary Act, commonly known as the Midnight Judges Act, which created a set of federal appeals courts between the district courts and the Supreme Court. Adams filled the vacancies created in this statute by appointing a series of judges whom his opponents called the Midnight Judges just days before his term expired. Most of these judges lost their posts when the 7th Congress, with a solid Republican majority, approved the Judiciary Act of 1802, abolishing newly created courts, retirement, initial years. Adams resumed farming at Peacefield in the town of Quincy and began work on the autobiography. On an autobiography. The work had numerous gaps, but eventually abandoned and left unedited. Most of Adams' attention was focused on farm work. He regularly worked around the farm, but mostly left manual labor to hired hands. His frugal lifestyle and president just had left him with a considerable fortune by 1801. In 1803, the bank holding his cash reserves of about 13000 collapsed. John Quincy resolved the crisis by buying his properties in Weymouth and Quincy, including Peaceville, for $12,800. During the first four years of retirement, Adams made little effort to contact others, but eventually resumed contact with old acquaintances such as Benjamin Waterhouse and Benjamin Rush. Adams generally stayed quiet on public matters. He did not publicly denounce Jefferson's actions as president, believing that instead of opposing systematic any administration running down their characters and opposing all their measures right or wrong, we ought to support every administration as far as we can in justice. When a disgruntled James Callender, angry at not being appointed to an office, turned on the president, revealing the Sally Hemings affair, Adams said nothing. John Quincy was elected to the Senate in 1803. Shortly thereafter, both he and his father crossed party lines to support Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase. The only major political incident was involving Adams during the President Jefferson years was a dispute with Mercy Otis Warren in 1806. Warren, an old friend, had written a history of the American Revolution, attacking Adams for his partiality for monarchy and pride of talents of, and much ambition. And tempestuous correspondence ensued. In time, the friendships healed. Adams did probably criticize the president over his embargo act, despite the fact that John Quincy voted for it. John Quincy resigned from the Senate in 1808 after Federalist controlled Senate, state Senate refused to nominate him for a second term. After the Federalists denounced John Quincy as a no longer being of their party, Adams wrote to him that he himself had long since abdicated this claim 
the name and character and attributes of that sect. After Jeff's requirement from public life in 1809, Adams became more vocal. He published a three-year marathon of letters in the Boston Patriot newspaper, refuting Lambert Lyon Hamilton's 1800 pamphlet. The initial piece was written shortly after his return to him from Peacefield and had gathered dust for eight years. Adams had decided to shelve it for, year, for fears that it could negatively impact John Quincy should he ever seek office. Although Hamilton had died in 1804 in a duel with Aaron Burr, Hamilton Adams felt he need felt the need to vindicate his character against his charges. With his son having broke from the Federalist Party and joined the Republicans, he felt he could safely do so without threatening his political career. Adams supported the War of 1812, having worried over the rise of sectionalism. He celebrated the growth of a national character that accompanied it. Adams supported James Madison for re-election to the presidency in 1812. Daughter Abigail Nabby was married to Representative William Stephen Smith, but she returned to her parents' home after the failure of the marriage. She died of breast cancer in 1813. Correspondence with Jefferson In early 1801, Adams sent Thomas Jefferson a brief note after returning to Quincy, wishing him a happy and prosperous presidency. Jefferson failed to respond that they did not speak again for 12, nearly 12 years. In 1804, Abigail, unbeknownst to her husband, wrote to Jefferson to express his condolences upon the death of his daughter, Polly, who had stayed with the Adamsons in London in 1787. This initiated a brief correspondence between the two, which quickly descended into political rancor. Jefferson terminated by not replying to Abigail's fourth letter. Aside from that, by 1812, there had been no communication between Peaceville and Monticello since Adams left office. In early 1812, Adams reconciled with Jefferson that the previous year had been tragic for Adams. His brother-in-law and friend Richard Cranch had died, along with his widow Mary and Nabby had been diagnosed with breast cancer. These events mellowed Adams and caused him to soften his outlook. Their mutual friend, Benjamin Rush, a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence, had been corresponding with Bullock, encouraged him to reach out to each other. On New Year's Day, Adams sent a brief friendly note to Jefferson to accompany a two-volume collection of lectures on her door by John Quincy Adams. Jefferson replied immediately with a cordial letter, and the two men revived their friendship, which they sustained by mail. The correspondence that they resumed in 1812 lasted the rest of their lives and has been hailed as among their greatest legacies of American literature. Their, re their letters represent an insight into both the period and the minds of the two revolutionary leaders and presidents. The missives lasted 14 years and consisted of 140, 150, 158 letters, 109 from Adams and 49 from Je Jefferson. Early on, Adams repeatedly tried to turn the correspondence to a discussion of their actions in the political arena. Jefferson refused to oblige him, saying that nothing new can be added by you or me to what has been said by others and will be said in every age. Adams made one more attempt, writing that you and I ought not to die before we have explained ourselves to each other. Still, Jefferson declined to engage Adams in this sort of discussion. Adams accepted this, and the correspondence turned to other matters, particularly philosophy and their daily habits. As the two men became older, the letters grew fewer and farther between. There was also important information that each man kept to himself. Jefferson said nothing about the construction of a new house, domestic turmoil, slave ownership, or poor financial situation, while Adams did not mention the troublesome behavior of his son, Thomas, who had failed as a lawyer and become an alcoholic, was ordering afterwards to living primarily as a caretaker at Peaceville. Last years and death. Abigail died of typhoid on October 28, 1818, at the Quincy home, Peaceville. The year 1824 was 
was filled with excitement in America, featuring a four-way presidential contest, with, which included John Quincy. The Marquis de Lafayette toured the country and met with Adams, who greatly enjoyed Lafayette's visit to Peaceville. Adams was delighted by the election of John Quincy to the presidency. The results became official in February 1825 after a deadlock was decided in the House of Representatives. He remarked, no man who ever held the office of president would congratulate a friend on obtaining it. Less than a month before his death, Adams wished a statement about the destiny of the United States, which historian Joy Hakem characterized as a warning for his fellow citizens. My best wishes and the joys of festivities and the solemn services of that day on which he will complete in which he completed the fiftieth year from his birth of the independence of the United States, a memorable epic in the annals of the human race, destined in future history to form the brightest or the blackest page, according to the use or the abuse of those political institutions by which they shall, in time to come, be shaped by the human mind. On july fourth, eighteen twenty six, the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, Adams died at peace at approximately 6.20 p.m. His last words include an acknowledgement of his longtime friend and rival, Thomas Jefferson survives. Adams was unaware that Jefferson had died several hours before at 90. Adams became the longest-lived U.S. president until Ronald Reagan surpassed him in 2001. John and Abigail Adams cribbed at United First Parish Church in Quincy, Massachusetts also contains the bodies of John Quincy and Louisa Adams. At the time of John Adams' death, John Quincy Adams was serving as, pres as U.S. President. Political Writings, Thoughts on Government During the First Continental Congress, Adams was sometimes solicited for his views on government. While recognizing his importance, Adams had privately criticized Thomas Paine's 1776 pamphlet, Common Sense, which attacked all forms of monarchy, even constitutional monarchy, of the sort advocated by John Locke. It supported an unicameral legislature and a weak executive elected by the legislature. According to Adams, the author had a, a better hand at pulling down than building. He believed that the views expressed in the pamphlet were so democratical without any restraint or even an, an attempt at any equilibrium or counterpoise that it must produce confusion and every evil work. What Paint advocated is a radical democracy with the views of the majority neither check nor counterbalance. This was incompatible with the system of checks and balances that conservatives like Adams would implement. Some delegates urged Adams to commit his views to paper. He did so in separate letters to these colleagues. So impressed was Richard Henry Lee that with Adams' consent, he had the most comprehensive letter printed. Published anonymously in April 1776, it was titled Thoughts on Government and styled as a letter from a German from a gentleman to his friend. Many historians agree that none of Adams' other compositions rivaled the enduring influence of this pamphlet. Adams advised that the form of government should be chosen to attain the desired ends, the happiness and virtue of the greatest number of people. He wrote that there is no good government but what is a Republican, that the only valuable part of the British Constitution is so because the very definition of a republic is an empire of law and not of men. The treatise defended by cameralism for a single assembly is liable to all the vices, follies, and frailties of an individual. Adams suggested that there should be a separation of power between the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branches, and further recommended that if a continental government were to be formed, then it should secretly be confined to certain enumerated powers. Thoughts on government was referenced in every state constitution writing hall. Adams used the letter to attack opponents of independence, 
He claimed that John Dickinson's fear of Republicanism was responsible for his refusal to support independence and wrote that opposition from Southern planters was rooted in fear that their aristocratic slaveholding statutes would be endangered by it. Massachusetts Constitution After returning from his first mission to France in 1779, Adams was elected to the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention with the purpose of establishing a new constitution for Massachusetts. He served on a committee of three, also including Samuel Adams and James Bedouin, to draft the Constitution. The task of writing it fell partly to John Adams. The resulting Constitution of Massachusetts was approved in 1780. It was the first Constitution written by a special committee, then ratified by the people, and was the first to feature bicameral legislature. Included were a distinct executive, though restrained by an executive council, which, with a qualified two-thirds veto and an independent judicial branch. The judges were given lifetime appointments, allowed to hold their offices for doing good behavior. The Constitution affirmed the duty of the individual to worship the supreme being and that he had the right to do so without molestation in the manner most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience. It established a system of public education that would provide free schooling for three years to the children of all citizens. Adams was a strong believer in good education. As one of the pillars of the Enlightenment, he believed that people in a state of ignorance were more easily enslaved, while those enlightened with knowledge would be better to able to protect their liberties. Adams became one of the founders of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1780. Defense of the Constitutions Adams' preoccupation with political and government affairs, which caused considerable separation from his wife and children, had a distinct familiar context, which he articulated in 1780. I must study politics and war that my sons may have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children the right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, statuary, and porcelain. While in London, Adams learned of a convention being planned to amend the Chronicles of the Confederation. In January 1787, he published a work entitled a Defense of the Constitution of the Government of the United States. The pen repudiated the views of the Turgut and other European writers as the viciousness of state government frameworks. He suggested that the rich, the well-born, and the able should be set apart from other men in the Senate that would prevent them from dominating the lower house. Adams' defense is described as, the articula- as an articulation of the theory of mixed government. Adams contended that social classes exist in every political society and that a good government must accept that reality. For centuries dating back to Aristotle, a mixed regime balancing monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, that is, the king, the nobles, and the people were required to preserve order and liberty. Historian <coughs> Gordon S. Wood has maintained that Adams' political philosophy had become irrelevant by the time of the federal Constitution was ratified by then American political thought, transformed by more than a decade of vigorous debate, as well as formed of experiential pressures, had abandoned the classical perception of politics as a mirror of social states. America's new understanding of popular sovereignty was that the citizens were the sole possessors of power in the nation. Representatives in the government enjoyed mere portions of the people's power and only for a limited time. Adams was thought to have overlooked this evolution and revealed his continued attachment to the older version of politics, yet Wood was accused of ignoring Adams' peculiar definition of the term republic and his support for a constitution ratified by the people. On separation of powers, Adams wrote that powers must be opposed to power and interest to interest. This sentiment was later echoed by James Madison's statement that ambition must be made to counteract ambition and Federalist Number 51 explaining that the separation of powers established under the 
constitution. Adams believed that human beings were naturally desirous of furthering their own ambitions in a single democratically elected house, if left unchecked, would be subject to this error, and therefore needed to be checked by an upper house and an executive. He wrote that a strong executive would defend the people's liberties against aristocrats attempting to take it away. On the government's role in education, Adams stated that the whole people must take upon themselves the education of the whole people and be willing to bear the expenses of it. There should not be a district of one mile square without a school in it, not founded by a charitable individual, but maintained at the public expense of the people themselves. Adams first saw the new United States Constitution in late 1787 to Jefferson. He wrote that he read it with great satisfaction. Adams expressed regret that the president would be unable to make appointments without Senate approval and over the absence of a Bill of Rights. Should not such a thing have preceded the model, he asked. Political philosophy and views. Slavery. Adams never owned a slave and declined to principle, on principle use to slave labor, saying, I have, through my whole life, held the practice of slavery in such abhorrence that I have never owned a Negro or any other slave, though I have lived for many years and times when the practice was not disgraceful, when the best men in my head thought it was in- was not inconsistent with their character, and when it was a co- and when it has cost me thousands of dollars for the labor and subsistence of free men, which I might have saved by the purchase of Negroes at the time when they were very cheap. Before the war, he occasionally represented slaves in suits for the freedom. Adams generally tried to keep the issue out of national politics because of the anticipated Southern response during a time when unity was needed to achieve independence. He spoke out in 1777 against a bill to emancipate slaves in Massachusetts, saying that the issue was presently too divisive and so the legislature should sleep for a time. He also was against the use of black soldiers in the revolution due to opposition from Southerners. Slavery was abolished in Massachusetts about 1780 when it was forbidden by implication in the Declaration of Rights that John Adams wrote into the Massachusetts Constitution. Abigail Adams vocally opposed slavery. Accusations of Monarchism Throughout his lifetime, Adams expressed controversial and shifting views regarding the virtues of monarchical and hereditary political institutions. At times, he conveyed substantial support for these approaches, suggesting, for example, that hereditary monarchy or aristocracy or aristocracy are the only institutions that can possibly preserve the laws and liberties of the people. Yet, other he distanced himself from such ideas, calling himself a mortal and irreconcilable enemy to monarchy, and no friend to hereditary limited monarchy in America. Such a denial did not assuage his critics, and Adams was often accused of being a monarchist. Historian Clinton Rossiter portrays Adams not as a monarchist, but a revolutionary conservative who sought to balance republicanism with the stability of monarchy to create ordered liberty. His 1790 discourses on Davila published in the Gazette of the United States, warned once again of the days of unbridled democracy. Many of these texts were scurrilous, including suggestions that he was planning to crown himself king and grooming John Quincy as heir to that throne. Peter Shaw has argued that the inevitable attacks on Adams crude as they were stumbled on a truth that he did not admit it to himself. He was leaning toward monarchy and aristocracy as distinct from kings and aristocrats. Decidedly, sometime after he became Vice President, Adams concluded that the United States would have to adopt a hereditary legislature and a monarch, and he outlined a plan for which state conventions would appoint hereditary senators while a national one appointed a president for life. In contrast to such notions, Adams asserted in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, If you suppose I have never had a design or desire of attempting to introduce a government of king, lords, and commons, or in other words, 
and hereditary executive or the hereditary senate either into the government either into the government of the United States or that of any individual state in this country you are wholly mistaken there is not such a thought expressed or intimated in any public writing or private letter of mine and I may safely challenge all of mankind to produce such a passage and quote the chapter and verse. Accordingly, to Luke Mayville, who Adams since since has two strands of thought, practical study of past and present governments, and Scottish Enlightenment thinking concerning individual desires expressed in politics. Adams' conclusion was that the great danger was that a, an oligarchy or the wealthy would take hold to the detriment of quality. To counter that danger, the power of the wealthy needed to be channeled by institutions and checked by a strong executive. Religious views. Adams raised a Congregationist since his ancestors were Puritans. According to Barger David McCullough, as his family and friends knew, Adams was both a devout Christian and an independent thinker, and he saw no conflict in that. In a letter to Rush, Adams credited religion with the success of his ancestors since their migration to the New World. He believed that regular church service was beneficial to men's moral sense. Everett, 1966, concludes that Adam strove for a religion based on the common sense sort of reasonableness and maintained that religion must change and evolve toward perfection. Fielding, 1940, argues that Adam's beliefs synthesized Puritan, Deist, and humanist concepts. Adam's at one point said that Christianity had really been revelatory but was, been, but was being mis misinterpreted in the service of superstition, fraud, and unscrupulous power. Frazier, 2004, notes that while he shared many perspectives with Deist and often used deistic terminology. Adams clearly was not a deist. Deism rejected any and all supernatural activity and intervention by God. Consequently, deists did not believe in miracles or God's providence. Adams did believe in miracles, providence, and to a certain extent, the Bible as revelation. Frazier argues that Adams' theistic rationalism, like that of the other founders, was a sort of middle ground between Protestantism and deism. In 1790, Adam Thomas Paine's deistic criticisms of Christianity in the Age of Reason, saying the Christian religion is above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed in ancient or modern times. The religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, and humanity. Let the black card Paine say that he what he will. But historian Gordon S. Wood, 2017, writes, although both Jefferson and Adams denied the miracles of the Bible and the divinity of Christ, Adams all retained respect for the religiosity appeal that Jefferson never had. In fact, Jefferson did it in private company to mock religious feelings. In the time of years, Adams moved away from some of the Puritan sentences of his youth and closer to more mainstream Enlightenment religious ideals. He blamed institutional Christianity for causing much suffering, but continued to be an active Christian while maintaining that religion as was necessary for society. He became a Unitarian, rejecting the divinity of Jesus. David L. Holmes argues that Adams, while adopting central tenets of the Unitarian creed, except that Jesus is the redeemer of the humanity and the biblical accounts of miracles as true. Legacy. Historical repetition. Franklin summed up what many thought of Adams when he said, he means well for his country, is always an honest man. Often a wise one, but sometimes in some things, absolutely one of his sentences. Adams came to be seen as someone with a long, distinguished, honorable career in public service and a man of great patriotism and integrity, but whose vanity, stubbornness, and cantankerousness often got him into unnecessary trouble. Adams strongly felt that he would be forgotten and underappreciated by history. These things often manifested themselves throughout envy and verbal attacks on other founders. 
Historian George Herring argues that Adams was the most independent-minded of the founders, though he formally aligned with the Federalists. He was somewhat a party unto himself, at times disagreeing with the Federalists as much as he did the Republicans. He was often described as prickly, but his tenacity was fed by decisions made in the face of universal opposition. Adams was, combative, was often combative, which diminished President Decorum, as he admitted in his old age, as president, I refuse to suffer in silence. I sighed, sobbed, and groaned, and sometimes screeched and screamed, and, then some, and I must confess to, to shame my shame and stubborn that I sometimes swore. Stubbornness was seen as one of its defining traits, as a fact for which Adams made no apology. Thanks to God that gave me stubbornness when I know I am right, he wrote. His resolve to advance peace with France while maintaining a posture of defense reduced his popularity and contributed to his defense for re-election. Most historians applaud him for avoiding an all-out war in France during his presidency. His signing of the Alien Sedition Act is almost always condemned. According to Furling's Adams' political philosophy fell out of step with the way that the country was heading. The country tended further away from the added on order and the rule of law and towards the Jeffersonian vision of liberty and weak central government. In the years following his retirement from public life as, Jeff as first Jeffersonian and then Jacksonian democracy grew to dominate American politics, Adams was largely forgotten. When his name was mentioned, it was typically not in a favorable way. In the 1840 presidential election, Whig candidate William Henry Harrison was attacked by Tim on the false allegation that he had once been a supporter of John Adams. Adams was eventually subject to criticism from states' rights advocates Edward A. Pollard, a strong supporter of the Confederacy during the American Civil War, single out Adams' writing. The first president from the North, John Adams, asserted and and put into practice the supremacy of the national power over the states and the citizens thereof. He was sustained in his attempt to tempt usurpations by all the New England states and by a powerful public sentiment in each of the middle states. The strict constructionists of the Constitution were not slow in raising the standard of opposition against the pernicious heir. In the 21st century, Adams remains less well-known than many America's other founding fathers. McCullough argued that the problem with Adams is that most Americans know nothing about him. Tom Leopold, the senator, wrote in 2001 that Adams remembered as that guy who served a single term as president between Washington and Jefferson as, as a short, vague, somewhat rotund man whose stature seems to have been dwarfed by his lanky colleagues. He has always been seen, Furley says, as honest and dedicated, but despite his lengthy career in public service, Adams is still overshadowed by the dramatic military and political achievements and strong personalities of his contemporaries. Gilbert Chinnard, in his 1933 biography, Adams described the man as staunch, honest, stubborn, and somewhat narrow. In his two-volume 1962 biography, Page Smith lauds Adams for his fight against radicals such as Thomas Paine, whose promised reforms portended anarchy and misery. Furling, in his 1992 biography, writes that Adams was his own worst enemy. He criticized him for his pettiness, jealousy, and vanity, and faults him for his frequent separations from his wife and children. He praised Adams for willing to acknowledge his deficiency and for striving to overcome them. In 1995, Peter Sharp published the character of John Adams. Furling believes that the man who emerges is one protection at war with himself, who desire for fame and recognition leads to charges of vanity. In 2001, David McCullough published a biography of the president of John Adams, McCullough allows Adams for consistency and honesty, plays down or explains away his more contrary actions, such as his dispute over presidential titles and the predominant flight from the White House, and criticizes his friend and rival Jefferson. The book sold very well and was very favorably perceived, and along with the Furling biography, contributed to a rubber resurgence in Adams' reputation. In 2008, a miniseries was released based on McCullough biography featuring Paul Giamatti as Adams. 
in memoriam. Adams is commanded as the namesake of various counties, buildings, and other items. One example is the John Adams Building of the Library of Congress, an institution whose existence Adams had signed into law. Unlike many other founders, Adams does not have a monument dedicated to him in Washington, D.C., although a family-inclusive Adams Memorial was authorized in 2001 and awaits funding. According to McCullough, popular symbolism has not been very generous toward Adams. There is no memorial, no statue in his honor in our nation's capital, and to me that is absolutely inexcusable. It's long past time when we should recognize what he did and who he was. Thank you for listening to this episode of U.S. President Number 2, John Adams. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, stay safe, stay home when you can. Practice social distancing if you do go out. Wear a mask. Wash your hands during this coronavirus pandemic. And we, as we hope for a normalcy back to normal life. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you.